Intent is not magic. Intent is nice, and it goes a long way sometimes, but if the result of good intentions is a bad outcome, then the intent becomes kind of irrelevant. There are plenty of examples of good intentions paired with bad outcomes in the world of global development. Ronnie Stuiver, a South African engineer, had a noble intention in 1989. He thought he'd figured out a way to make it safer and easier to access drinking water for some of the billion-plus people in the world without it. Stuiver's idea was to take an untapped energy resource, children, and build a playground roundabout that would, as children swung it around, also pump water out of the ground. It was called the Roundabout Play Pump. It's a clever idea, and images of smiling South African children simultaneously having fun and providing water for their communities was impossible for Western media to resist. It's very simple. It's a, it's a positive displacement pump. Without getting too technical, the pump goes up and down. The children go round and round, and it makes the pump go up and down. It's basically a windmill. But there was a problem. Nobody had asked the people in these villages whether they preferred this new way of pumping, and often they didn't. Sometimes children didn't want to play, but they had to because people need water, inadvertently encouraging a kind of forced child labor. Otherwise, it's often older women who are responsible for pumping and fetching water, and they found the roundabout pump unwieldy and physically demanding. And when the pumps broke, which was often, they were tricky and expensive to fix. It's just a really inefficient way to pump water. By some estimates, in some towns there weren't enough hours in the day for people to pump enough to meet their water needs. By 2008, there were more than a thousand pumps installed around South Africa, but in 2009, Play Pumps International stopped installing new ones and instead concentrated their resources on just fixing existing ones. The Play Pumps were an innovation which excited the wrong people because they were never really designed for the people who ended up using them. And when they finally arrived in the communities that they were designed to help, it was too late to expect them to fit into people's existing lives or to fix their problems in a truly helpful way. In education, one big mistake that everyone makes is to think that they know themselves well enough to judge the most effective way to learn. Almost everyone has a preference for a mode of learning. I'm a visual learner, or I learn best by doing something myself, or I learn best through repetition. So back in 2008, some psychologists did what nobody had really done before and went through around 80 years' worth of research papers on different learning styles to see if any were actually more or less effective. They found that there was essentially zero evidence that learning styles were a thing. What someone said was the way they learned most effectively was often completely unrelated to what form of learning was actually best for them. Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't, but a huge assumption for many modern education systems for how many teachers are taught to teach even was pretty much just a society-wide gut feeling. The common thread here is that whether you're building a pump for people in sub-Saharan Africa or designing a school curriculum, it's easy to intend to do the right thing, but that's not the same as actually doing the right thing. Doing what the evidence shows us is the right thing.
This week, we're going to be looking at the difference between forcing change and encouraging it, between assuming that you know what people in lower income and non-Western countries need to change their lives and actually asking them in advance, and how to best act on that information. This is Nevertheless, a podcast celebrating the women transforming teaching and learning through technology, supported by Pearson Education and hosted by me, Lee Alexander. Well, when you take a step back, in Africa, much of the water, particularly in rural areas, can be teeming with bacteria. And there are a lot of potentially complex solutions around how you actually get clean water in those rural areas. This is Kanika Ball. She's the CEO of Evidence Action, an NGO that specializes in research and modeling of poverty reduction programs in lower-income countries. Their approach is simple. Before spending huge sums of money on anything, no matter how well-intentioned, our assumptions need to be rigorously tested and trialed. It's not about impact, but cost-effective impact, taking projects which work at a small scale and making them effective on a scale that affects millions of lives. They lead and manage two main projects right now. The first is Deworm the World Initiative, which, well, did you know that nearly a billion children worldwide are at risk of contracting parasitic worms from soil? These parasites cause malnutrition and other health issues, which have knock-on effects on things like school performance. What we uh, had found was basically, as well as our partners who are working with us, is that there was really sound data that showed that children who actually received really low-cost deworming drugs, which need to be delivered once or twice a year to children, cost less than 50 cents to get them, that that really simple intervention actually kept children in school. It reduced um, absenteeism by 25% and actually led to longer lifelong earnings. So by giving children deworming drugs once or twice a year, you actually could change the trajectory of their lifelong earnings and productivity. Their other project, Dispensers for Safe Water, does what it says. It finds ways to dispense safer water. Globally, 2 million people die each year from drinking unsafe water. 315,000 of those deaths are children killed after contracting diarrhea from unsafe drinking water. And a huge problem with so many of the water access programs in parts of the world, like sub-Saharan Africa, is that the focus, like with the play pumps, is on building wells or pumps. It's, it's not on the actual quality of the water. And it turned out that, you know, the best place to actually deliver clean water was by co-locating the chlorine to clean the water next to the watering source. Previously, you had had socially marketed chlorine, so people would have to go to a store, remember to purchase it, bring it home, take the extra step of chlorinating the water. The adoption on that was incredibly low. It was about 10%. And so what we did is looked at the patterns of where people actually get their water and co-located right next to the source of the water, a bright blue dispenser. You actually just turn the spigot and you get a pre-dose solution of chlorine. And then you get that, uh, take your watering can and go and get the water. And by the time you get home, the chlorine has actually disinfected the water. Because it's so simple, it's so easy, it's so user-friendly, much like the iPhone uh, for many of us, it's something where adoption has been incredibly high. And so we're actually averaging between 50 to 60% adoption. Now, the point of all this is that they only know these granular details about daily life for the people they want to help because of active community-oriented research. 
getting people into communities over the course of weeks or even months, watching, talking, listening, realizing how to best serve people, and being scientific too. The chlorine solution was arrived at after researchers from Berkeley and Harvard compared a number of alternatives in randomized controlled trials. They even have a live interactive dashboard on the Dispensers for Safe Water website, giving up-to-date public data on how many people have been affected so far using data gathered from monthly checks of each station. They're closing in on 5 million at the time of this recording, with nearly 12,000 installed dispensers. 98% of those dispensers have successfully gone without any breakdown or shortage of chlorine since July 2015, thanks to a dedicated, bespoke supply chain setup. There's also a, re- a lot around that. We have really thoughtful service and maintenance because what we found is that if a dispenser isn't working for a few days, there is actually a shift in behaviors and next time people come, they may not even try the dispenser. So we really have very carefully tracked the adoption. We get real-time information that's delivered by our community attendants who go out and visit the watering points and homes so that we know what's not working and we can be really responsive and flexible so that when people go, there's reliable, easy-to-access chlorine all the time. Even though it was low cost and ostensibly easy to get, that was the barrier. And I think it's really, whether it's Evidence Action or any other group, it's really about understanding what are the barriers, what is the flow, who is your client, and how can you best serve them. But it's almost too easy to say, listen to people, of course, or, you know, don't force change from above, something that can feel difficult for some organizations, particularly ones that really do want to help people, is realizing that often your intentions, your help, is only so good as long as it's not actively in the way. One organization that has melded good intentions and successful outcomes is the Detroit Community Technology Project. Detroit was famously hit particularly badly by the financial crisis 10 years ago, compounding a number of existing class and racial injustices there. It's also a diverse city, 83% African-American and another 7% Latino. And it's actually Caucasians that are a minority here. And when you think about the history of the United States, I think it's been traditionally that those of color communities are the ones that often get overlooked. That's Diana Nucera, the director of the Detroit Community Technology Project. Her concern is simple. 40% of people in Detroit have no access to the Internet. That number includes 70% of Detroit's school-aged children. It's a situation directly born of neglect from service providers and inaction from the government. And there's these moments where you could see the history of the lane of these telephone lines in which particularly low-income communities were overlooked. And they're overlooked then because of the same reason why they're overlooked now is because of bad credit, high foreclosure rates, or this idea that they are not worth investing in because they cannot pay. This is the same thing we're dealing with here in Detroit, where you have major economic collapse. There's parts of the city that are being revitalized, but there's a large part that is not. And that that infrastructure, that sort of habit of creating infrastructure based on a bottom line is what's really got us in trouble. 
Diana came to Detroit from Indiana in 2008, just as that economic collapse was underway. She came from a tiny town in Indiana where she was a member of one of only four families of color. It was isolated, and so, in her younger years, online spaces started providing an outlet for her to find similar-minded people, to explore new forms of culture and music, and she's passionate about giving young people today those same possibilities through digital connection. When she arrived in Detroit, she found a city full of warmth and cooperation in spite of the emerging crisis. In particular, a lot of the problems were made worse by the lack of internet access in so many African-American neighborhoods. That makes it even harder for children to study, for local businesses to succeed, for people to find new jobs or form the community bonds that make a city a success. For Detroit residents, it shrinks the world available to them and it withers their potential to shape their own lives. The Detroit Community Technology Project has two programs to try to remedy this situation. Uh, the first is the Equitable Internet Initiative, a grassroots coalition of local nonprofits and local people in three underserved neighborhoods of the city. Antennae, located on three of the tallest buildings on their respective streets, broadcast shared gigabit broadband connections, and those signals are picked up and repeated by a mesh network of Wi-Fi routers. So we've sort of grown from sharing business connections to thinking about like how do we foster neighborhood-based internet service providing or what I like to say like digital justice cooperatives. They also have volunteers who undergo 20 weeks of training to act as digital stewards who do everything from day-to-day -day infrastructure maintenance to teaching digital literacy to their friends and neighbors. It is a truly communal utility, people who need the internet building the internet themselves. Well, I believe it, it looks like really putting the people who are at the most risk, as well as those who are suffering from the least amount of resources, it's putting those people at the forefront of creating solutions. The first thing you have to do, though, in order to get people to critically think about technology and begin to build their own infrastructure, you have to educate them. I mean, digital literacy at that point becomes like a really important tool because if you don't know it, you can't do anything with it. What mutual aid can look like with the internet is both creating this connection to the world around, but also really enhancing local relationships. It's almost like a digital layer that really weaves in and out of our analog lives that supports it rather than separates it. It's a truly communal utility, people who need the internet building the internet themselves. Their other project, Our Digital Bodies, is also education-focused, helping low-income and marginalized groups learn and understand about concepts like data security and privacy. Diana has noticed along the way that she has to be really intentional about who they're serving and who they're prioritizing. Oftentimes, technology is penetrated within specifically white male communities. Those are the folks that have the most access to the knowledge. And so I think I think it's important to note that we specifically work to prioritize people of color and women, and queer and trans folks to be digital stewards because those folks are the ones that are often left out of the equation. And that when we think about digital inclusion and diversity, it's often this like, we'll now include you in what we're doing, or we're just gonna add a few people of color to our, our mix and it'll be fine. When really it's so much more complex than that. Like if you're going to 
foster diversity, you really do need diversity at the center of that. But central to all of this is that these projects lead to self-education as people are given the tools to teach one another and themselves faster and more powerfully than any external group could. Communities can build environments that allow their members to reach their potential on their own terms, from children more able to study and do their homework to adults wanting to retrain for new jobs. It's a model they borrowed from the 1960s civil rights movement where it was successfully used to form decentralized networks of activists who, once they learned to read and write, could then teach other illiterate African Americans in their own communities to read and write as well. So that you're not only teaching people a specific skill, but you're teaching people how to learn in multiple ways. And that that initiates lifelong learning. And we have to think about that specifically with technology because technology changes so rapidly. This is something we heard echoed when we spoke to Sanskriti Diwali, one of the two creators of the very cool Project Mudra, an Indian startup whose product, Annie, makes classroom and self-teaching of Braille possible. It's a kind of tactile keyboard powered by a Raspberry Pi with keys that mechanically rise and fall to form the shapes of different Braille letters. It's a complete Braille reading and writing and learning machine in one. But designing a machine for a specific community without input from that community is a bad idea. A team of sighted individuals developing a product for the blind is like a team of men developing a feminine hygiene product. <laughs> We've been very, very uh, sort of aware of that fact. So any, any little thing we do, we have that network set up where we quickly go and uh, get feedback. There is the aspect of blindness, of course, which is how our users are different from the team that's making the solution. As with the Detroit Community Technology Project and with Evidence Action, the key here is to listen to people about what they need most to learn independently and combine that with evidence-based action. A product like Annie works because there's a recurring feedback loop between the designers and the community that they want Annie to serve. One other place we've observed this difference is also that it is a product for children and the way adults react to anything is completely different from the way children react to that thing. And you will never get those responses from adults. You will only ever get them from actually testing with the children themselves. So these are two things that we've really learned saying that, okay, this is our target user and we are not it. Therefore, we have to be extremely mindful of checking every little tweak in the products on the product side with our target user. And target user being blind and a child, because those two are completely unique perspectives that we do not currently have. But if you're a part of an external group or organization, you know, someone who really isn't connected or enmeshed in some way with the people you're trying to help, then there usually is that extra layer. As Diana Nucera said, the onus is on you to provide the tools to initiate self-learning, to build up the foundations upon which others can in turn build and thrive. That applies whether you're a development charity thinking about waterborne diseases or engineers building a product. And this is the approach that Pearson used when they partnered with Save the Children a few years ago to try to help refugee children displaced by the Syrian conflict who stay in education. Here's Teodora Burkova, Pearson's head of social innovation. A few years ago, we actually partnered with Save the Children in order to be able to reach children from Syria who were affected by the conflict there and had been displaced to Jordan. So looking at, along with them, really any kids that have been displaced by conflict, their experience is, is very unique, typically entails a lot of trauma, obviously, but also many challenges 
in enrolling in school and staying in school once they have been relocated. Pearson didn't just want to take an existing product and try to plug it into this very situation, so they spent many months conducting field research on the ground in Jordan, working closely with educators, parents, caretakers, as well as many children as a way of understanding their unique needs. We wanted to really take our time to understand what was going on because we felt that that would give us the highest chance of being able to develop something that is effective. So after working together for this kind of research phase, this past September, we launched a program in three schools in Jordan that serve a high number of refugee children, along with Jordanian children as well. And we will be working together with SAVE to deliver a a in-school program that works with parents and teachers and kids in order to improve the overall learning environment, as well as to provide additional time for the kids to actually be learning. The learning environment is challenging. Many, if not most, of the kids have missed entire years of their education. And the complex geopolitical situation makes student welfare problems like bullying even more complex. But Pearson found some basic truths that have served them well so far. Find a good partner who knows what they're talking about, like Save the Children, and develop relationships with the people working on the ground. And encourage these spaces where people can learn and grow and and be the people that they want to be. This applies to communities and to companies. Pearson runs an internal incubator where any employee can pitch education technology ideas to target low-income learners around the world. But there are all kinds of incubators, of course, run by all kinds of companies. For an example of how an incubator can hit this sweet spot we've been talking about while giving someone the education and support they need to change their world, we spoke to Mariam. And tell me, what do you actually want to know? Mariam's from Gaza. She's a refugee, but she's also a businesswoman and a tech founder. Her potential horizon was first expanded thanks to Google's Startup Weekend event, which was hosted at Gaza Sky Geeks. That was the Strip's first startup incubator space. This was the first startup weekend of its kind in the same year, 2011. You know, Startup Weekends is a kind of a global event. It happens everywhere in the world. And it's uh, 54 hours where people come in the weekend to start a company. They come with different ideas, they pitch their ideas, they have 60 seconds to tell everybody about the idea, people have to vote, and then the ideas with more votes got the chance to be implemented during the weekend. Actually, you need just to come with a prototype, and then by the end of the weekend, you will have investors and be able to invest in your own company. At that time, she was a fourth-year engineering student, but she'd never considered founding her own company. But watching the pitches on that first weekend inspired her, and she had her own pitch when she came back in 2012. I learned a lot of things. So when I came again the year after, I won the competition, and that was the time where I started my company. That year, 2012, very few people at that time were thinking about starting their own startups, especially females, let's say zero females. So I was kind of the first female leaders there to start uh, and get investment from Europe. Her idea was, in her own words, Uber before Uber. Informal ride-sharing was already commonplace in Gaza at the time because of gasoline shortages, 
and Miriam was frustrated by how clumsy it was to find rides. Often they were arranged through public Facebook walls and groups. The company, as a starting something, it wasn't really common because we know that you need to have money and uh, you need to have experience. And even there, like, the economy is very bad. And how you can do this as a female, like, your option is very limited. But with Gazas, Gazas K Geeks and Startup Weekends, I came to know that actually you kind of start small and you have the opportunity to grow. But it's a step by step, like you can't change the world from one try, one chance, but you need to start small and then uh, try again and again and again until you make it. Being part of the incubator meant that Mariam got to meet mentors from all around the world. Which is something that you usually do not find in small cities, especially places where people do not have access or traveling freedom to go anywhere. So they brought people from outside, make them mentors, people uh, with technical experience, teach them more about business models, expose them to a very big network where they can see angel investors and so on. The war in 2014 cut her tech startup ambitions short. A third of the city was destroyed, the cellular networks collapsed, fuel became extremely scarce, and the few connections made with the outside world, not just her friendships, but her mentorships too, were put under strain. She had to leave and find her own space to thrive in Germany, where she recently completed her MBA while interning for a large global financial company. But her heart is still in Gaza and her mind is there too, full of inspiration from the different resources she's been given over the last decade. We should say here that the play pump is not a complete lost cause. Communities in South Africa are now getting play pumps again, but only after an acknowledgement in 2010 by Play Pumps International that they needed to, quote, step back and regroup. The charity now works through Water for People, an older, more experienced water provision NGO, which only offers the roundabouts as, quote, part of a large portfolio of solutions which African communities can choose from, including forms of water treatment. So will these people get what they need or just what others assume that they need on their behalf? It makes you feel that everything is possible. Like if you're locked up, for example, in Gaza, knowing a few things about the world, just waiting for somebody to decide your future, you can do nothing. But if you talk the chance and the opportunity to implement things, you actually can feel that you're changing the world, even if it's your own world, like very small things around you. But I believe also you can't change the world before you change your own small world around you. Then when you do it, when you succeed in that, you can change the world of your family, the world of your community, the world of your city, and then the world. Like, I can't be Superman, but I can be a successful CEO. This is what I believe. Nevertheless is a Story Things production. Writing and editing by the team at Story Things. Music and sound design by Jason Oberholzer. Executive producer, Nathan Martin. Supported by Pearson Education. And with this episode, presented by me, The Alexander. For show notes, go to neverthelesspodcast.com. From everyone here at Story Things and Pearson Education, we'd like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas, and we'll be back sometime in the new year. If you enjoyed the show, please go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe. You can listen to some of our previous episodes and rate and review them, which really helps. Thanks very much.